This podcast episode is a continuation of the previous episode with the same guest, Ryan Bayron. You don't necessarily have to listen to the previous episode to understand this episode, but the standard introductions will be omitted and the conversation will just continue. Please enjoy. All right, I think that we're okay with moving on to our next subject. <laughs> you have another video in which you look right into the camera and you own your masculinity. You know, I just had a, an interview and I'm editing it now to release tomorrow about uh, with a guy who is an expert on masculinity. And we had a deep, thorough conversation about what that actually means. And so I'll, I'll postulate the question to you and then we'll, we can do a deep dive. It doesn't matter. Ryan, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be masculine? So when I when I started going outside the boundaries of Christianity, I very quickly discovered Taoism and explored the yin yang and kind of like what it means. And it's really just a visualization of the principle of opposites. And so there are all these things that they, they it kind of pinpoints the opposite ends of a spectrum. And and one on one of the sides is masculine and one of the sides is feminine. And there are a bunch of other things on the masculine side and a bunch of other things on the feminine side because it all it is is postulate, postulating opposites, you know? And then the trap we fall into is assuming that all the things in the yang belong together and all things in the yin belong together and there's this little crossover. And I think we've done the same thing with masculinity and femininity. I think there is something to be said for masculine energy and feminine energy. That being said, I think every human being embodies both. And I think wholeness and health is a perfect balance of both in any one person to the point where we have, and there's a documentary I keep being told about. I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to invoke it without having seen it, which is a dangerous thing, but there's a documentary called the mask you, the mask you live in. It's a book and a documentary. I think it's kind of an expose on what the man box is, all the qualities and traits that we've decided as a culture are masculine and all the things that we've decided are feminine. And how kind of arbitrary those are. And like, I, 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 there are men who come in my comments on TikTok and say they can't listen to me because I paint my nails. Because nail painting is a feminine thing. Even though the earliest case of nail painting we have in human history is Babylonian warriors who painted their nails and their lips different colors to signify their rank to each other. So nail painting <laughs> has roots in a bunch of men displaying who outranks whom there's nothing more alpha culture than that <laughs> you know but we we in today's day and age we see it as feminine it's it's neither it's neutral and there are a lot of things that are completely and utterly totally neutral that we have assigned value in either the man or the woman box that i i think it, it'd be best to name in order to dismantle Right. And some of the things like some of the, some of the things that people said that a lot of guys will say in the man box is strength. Right. Sure. But then you're also saying that weakness and femininity go hand in hand, which is a good, which is a, a big part of the reason why a lot of the, the hypermasculine guys are afraid to be feminine. They're not afraid to be feminine. They're afraid to appear weak and they think femininity, femininity is weak. I went to CrossFit with enough women to know there's nothing weak about the woman about the, about the feminine form. There's nothing weak about femininity. There's nothing weak about women. There are women in that gym who could bench press me, you know? And so strength is feminine and it's masculine. 
dominance, masculine and feminine, leadership, masculine and feminine, caretaking, masculine and feminine, empathy, compassion, masculine and feminine, you know? And so what does it mean to be a man? Uh, it means you're an adult with a wiener. <laughs> like, what, you know, I don't know. It just, it all kind of falls apart when you think about the traits well, that we assign to those things and realize how they're not really intrinsically uh, tied to those things at all, other than the meaning we give them. Okay. So there's two points to that. Number one, yes. Right. You have a penis, right? That is essentially what it means. Your everything about you is, uh, every, and I say everything nonchalantly, but honestly, it's about what, let's say 85% about you is based on your private parts. Your, yes. your name when mm-hmm. you were born, the color of your bedroom, the mm-hmm. toys you played with when the clothes I was allowed to wear clothes you're allowed to wear when you were a toddler, right. the, the toys you were allowed to play with as a child, the gender of your friends, as you mm-hmm. kept growing up your, your place in society, whether you were supposed to be the caretaker or the defender. Um, it, I'm telling you, it's a lot. It, it's, it, and it kind of just surrounds this persona, whether you are privileged or happen to not be privileged uh, for a very long time, whether you can vote or not in the United Uh States. And it stems from society. It stems from our culture. It stems from our history as humans, because you cannot deny the fact that as cavemen, we took on the family role. Mom, the mother would stay and take care of her young while the, the male, the father would go out and hunt. It's not to say that the female would never go out to hunt, right? But traditionally, that's what happened. And we kept these roles. Uh, We know that if you have an average man and an average woman, scientifically, the man is stronger. So again, even science says that there is a a difference. The, The chemicals from our private parts, right? Men have a lot more testosterone than estrogen in their body. And women have more estrogen than testosterone testosterone in their body. So in essence, that's what being a man is. It's, It's curtailing your behavior and you are meant to fit into this box in which society has deemed all of these qualities. Uh So the one thing that I want to make sure we name is that I know enough trans people to know that the, even the idea that your gender is your genitals is something that we made up Hmm. because I know, I know, I know not a lot, but I know uh, at least one trans person who is, is female to male, but didn't get bottom surgery. So he's a he always has been a he his whole life but he doesn't have what you and i have that 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 makes us say that we're he right but he's as much a man as is either of us and so the question is what really makes you a man is is just how you identify right i meant the private parts as insofar as they go right right and and here's the other thing too like like we a lot of the, a lot of the things that we that we surround with gender, we surround with gender because they made sense at one point in time and they don't anymore. And because we don't detach ourselves from those things, we think they matter 
now like short hair on boys that's kind of a normal thing boys have short hair girls have long hairs i had a, a goddaughter who spent like three months not wanting to talk to me because i had long hair and she didn't know what bucket i was supposed to go into you know and that came about when the industrial revolution happened people who worked with machinery because machinery became a thing had to have short hair because long hair was liability and then especially in World War One, you had trench warfare and then outbreaks of lice because you had all these people in these enclosed spaces. And so they said, well, if we don't have hair, we don't have lice. So all these soldiers came back from war with no hair and they were also men. And so then the short hair men thing started to kind of take hold. Now we don't have like, <laughs> there are so many reasons that like those reasons aren't really, don't, they don't permeate our culture now the way they did back then. And so now we have men who have long hair and it's socially acceptable, right? We've let go of that idea for the most part that you don't have, you, your hair doesn't determine your, determine your gender and isn't determined by your gender, even though at one point in time, it made sense for it too, right? And so in hunter-gatherer societies, you also have the, in those societies, women were also the warriors. The cave people and the plains people. Because if people attack, they attack the home base. And who was at the home base? The women. So while yes, the, the men needed to go hunt and use their testosterone against animals, the women were using their strength against people who are smarter and more dangerous, right? So you can't take the men are physically dominant argument very, very far, not nearly as far as people want to. And then the other thing, like these days, any physically demanding job that would have usually been relegated to men, women now do. And a lot of the jobs that don't require physical strength, like every web developer in Silicon Valley, it doesn't require any strength, right? And so even if you could say that at one point in human history, men and women did X, Y, Z because it made utilitarian sense. If it doesn't make utilitarian sense now, we don't need to operate that way. Yes, that is evolutionarily inherited into our brainstem. And that is our job to recognize that. But Human beings also did something called the enlightenment, which showed us that we are not beholden to our brainstems. And because they have proven that, that's not an excuse to act like we're still in hunter-gatherer societies. I'm not talking to you so much as everybody who I've talked to who's used the same argument to like assert male dominance. Like, mm, But it, mm. takes, it takes time. It takes work. It takes education. It takes yes. effort to unlearn these principles. And yeah, right. for sure, you have to recognize that dominance and being recessive are fluid, very fluid. And I'm thinking of a scenario where let's say there were cavemen, but they had to leave the cave for whatever reason. And now they're on on foot and they're trying to find another cave. And I keep saying cave or whatever. Uh, they're right. trying to find another place to live. And let's say mom has a baby or a child and the, the father sees that this child is slowing them down and their own survival is at risk. And so I can see that the male saying to the, to the female, we got to let this kid go. You know, we'll have another one down the line. And this cave woman coming up and saying, no, we are not doing that. Mm. Uh, you are out of line. We are going to continue to trek and we're going to keep this baby. So there I can see where women will be completely dominant over this male caveman. And we just have to realize that, yeah, it's not a dominant thing. It's not this and that. Now, with all of this conversation going on, I'm going to bring up something that I brought up with the other person, which is Joe Rogan. I'm pretty sure that you know who Joe Rogan and, and his podcast, correct? What are your thoughts about Joe Rogan and him being masculine and him having all of these followers? 
This is the first time I've spoken about this publicly. And if I get too heated, you're going to need some like hand signal from you. <laughs> he, um, God, man, I don't even know where to start with Joe Rogan. I, I, I don't have. So I'll go ahead as... and get started. I can get, get it started for you. And then you can just pick it up as you gather your thoughts around, around him. But he, I remember there was one particular moment where he said that guys are stronger, guys are stronger, guys are stronger. And he says that, the, and he pointed to a story in which there was a secret service, a female secret service agent in front of the white house. And that there was this crazy man that barged in, jumped over the fence, ran towards this woman and knocked her down with his strength and was able to get through and was now running inside the White House. And, you know, he's, he kept going and kept going and saying, you know, I love my wife. I love my wife. But if it was me and she was standing at the front, I'm getting in. I'm getting in. I'm knocking her down. And so I was just like, bro, it's not all about that. You know, there are strong women out there. And I haven't read the story about the Secret Service agent. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's more to the story than what what you're postulating. So, again, I ask you, what are your thoughts, Ryan, about Joe Rogan? Yeah, so I don't really have such a as big of a problem with him as I do with his followers. He definitely spouts some shit and he definitely, (laughs) I think, leads people in a direction that is not in their highest good as men or as people. That being said, I think there's also a community of men, a crowd of men who take his words and take it even farther than than even he meant when he said them. And will use things that he said and look because he's 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 MMA fighter and he's buff and he's he checks all the box for what it means to be masculine according to our arbitrary standards in this culture of of what it is. So like if you're looking if you're if you're a guy who who believes in alpha culture, you're going to look for the guy who's the most alpha, which technically makes you a beta, which I don't think they want to admit, but he definitely fits the bill for what an alpha would look like. Right. But he also has a way of only looking at parts of information and acting like it's the whole. When people say men are stronger, men are stronger, men are stronger. When men say that we all mean physically stronger. And that's not the only type of strength. And the alpha culture came from two different books one was written studying wolves and one was written studying chimps i don't remember the name of the wolf one the chimp was called ape politics or primate politics or something like that and the wolf one was studying wolf packs and how alpha culture works and everything and what eventually came out after the book was written was that yeah alpha alpha culture exists in wolf packs but only in captivity and when you observe them in the wild it's the entire that's not how it works at all the strongest people are the strongest wolves are the ones that look out for the weak ones the most. They have no re, no reason to assert their dominance, no reason to prove how strong they are. There's no um, contest of strength to figure out who's the strongest. None of that exists in wolf culture unless they're in captivity. And so, if you're going to if you're going to use wolves to to paint a picture of humans being alpha, then what that really is is a critique on how our system has put us in captivity rather than you know let's let's pick on the little guy. And then when it comes to chimpanzees, that's the other big, the other big book that alpha culture comes from, which by the way, most of the guys who believe in alpha culture do not read these books because they do not read. <laughs> and, and that's one thing that makes Joe Rogan different is he does, he does, he does seem to be someone who, who actually seems to hunt down facts, um, which I don't see he, that he has in common with his, 
with his audience. But I think, again, it's, I, it's, I think this man likes to read, but I think facts. that it's he has a paradigm that is very strong and that if he reads something or if he listens to one of his guests that doesn't fit that paradigm, he will let you know. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it comes down and his his I think his cognitive bias and his confirmation bias is stronger than his receptivity to the things that he reads. Like he reads it through a lens of what he already believes, which again, uh, he, he has a lot of material that's gone into that belief. And to his credit, that's more than what most people base their beliefs on. But you still have to kind of, if you read something that proves you wrong, you have to kind of admit that you're wrong. Or if you only take a fraction of the information to build your conclusion, at least admit that you're only taking a fraction of the information, right? We don't talk about how women are emotionally stronger than men. We don't talk about how in chimpanzee culture, that's what makes you alpha. That is 100% what makes you alpha in chimpanzee culture. We have this idea that they're just showing each other strength and it's they're beating their chest. And that's not how you become alpha in chimpanzee culture. You're chosen alpha by elder chimps. And so it's not even about influence. You're not the most influential because you're elected by people who have more social uh, clout than you do or ever will as alpha. And the way that you get selected as alpha is by being the most empathic, by settling disputes peacefully among the chimpanzee population by taking care of the little one and ultimately being the reason that everybody is thriving. And so the alpha in chimpanzee culture looks a whole lot more like your, like your traditional soccer mom than Mr. Look how strong I am. And even when you are alpha, you're not in charge. You're not on the top. You have way higher cortisol levels than anyone else in the pack and you're going to die younger. So it's not even a preferable position to be in. And so the, 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 the thing that, that irks me about the Joe Rogan follower base is that they buy into this idea that they think is based on nature and they think is based on biology and all this stuff. And it's really not. And they've, they follow this guy who only looks at a part of information that he takes in and then spouts it like it's a whole thing. And then they take what he says and, and bump it up to a million. And then how there's this whole culture around that. And it's like, what, what, to what end? <laughs> to what end? What do you like? There's this like I've seen this, this, these advertisements for what they now have something called AlphaCon, where it's like a whole bunch of white male speakers try, teaching how to be alpha. And I'm like, you realize that if you're in the seats, you're a beta. Like, do you get that? <laughs> like, do they? Do you have a room full of alphas? That's not even how alpha culture works. And so, like, I feel like they don't have, they don't, they're not aware of themselves. There's no outside in perspective to see how they actually are. And I think Joe and his content and his podcast, he's careless because he allows this to happen because they keep coming back for more and his views are good and his listens are good and his ratings are good and his audience is locked in and they're buying his alpha brain. Yeah. Right? And I, it's irresponsible for someone who is in his position, I think. Just for the record, I, I'm a follower, but I'm not a fan. I watched just to, and I see it, and sometimes I'll even look at an entire episode because I was very interested in the Sanjay Gupta one from CNN. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, you are right. I think that more men need to reflect on what it means to be a man. And this is the type of conversation that more men need to have, frankly, in order to, to make sure we're not taking it over that line. And one of the other bases of how men have been defined so much is like you've been referring to throughout is religion 
And mm-hmm. let's take something that you know very well of Christianity and patriarchy and masculinity, because that is the foundation, I believe, of Christianity. What is the first person that ever lived? Adam. Then you have mm-hmm. Abraham, Noah, Moses, Jesus mm-hmm. himself. The 12, his 12 disciples were all men. Most of the writers, I believe, of the Bible were men. God himself is referred to as a man. Uh, in the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo drew or, or painted God as this white bearded man. And so if a religion is so founded on these patriarchal foundation, how should men take that? And how should women take that? Yeah. So then we could do a whole nother episode on that. It's, it's a lot to deconstruct. And the funny thing is that there are women all over the Bible. They're just uh, minimized. Like, do you like, does anyone ever wonder why Jesus never had a job, but he was never hungry? How'd that work? Wasn't he, was he a carpenter? Rolled. Wasn't he? No, a bank- I mean, he, he was, he was trained as a carpenter, but he didn't have a vocation as a carpenter. When he went and did his ministry and did all his walking around and stuff, he had a posse of women paying for everything, rich, powerful women. One of whom was the wife of King Herod. And we know that because we read the Bible. It's just not taught in sermons or in Sunday school. There are always, there, there are powerful women in the Bible. There are leaders in the Bible who are women. There are some of the most iconic scenes in, in, in our scriptures are headed by women. It's, it's all in the book. It's just not in the church. It's it, the Bible isn't even really, I mean, I'm just going to say, I was going to say the Bible's not really patriarchal, but the Bible we have today post King James very much is um, by design. Well, but I mean, look the at church the, take, let's look at the actual women that are taught at Sunday school. First you have Eve, the right. person responsible for eating the apple. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have the Virgin Mary who was told that in order to serve the Lord, we're going to impregnate you. And she said, yes, I am the Lord's servant. She did give consent. I actually wanted to look that up. And then you have Mary Magdalene, who is, according to the Bible, some sort of prostitute. I mean, it's it give them credit for giving Mary Magdalene the one the first one to go to the grave and see that he disappeared. But again, even the, the women that were taught who played a role in the Bible were not um you know prestigious according to the way it's taught and that's when you go all the way back to uh the two councils of, of constantinople and the one council of nicaea in the first century all these scriptures were, were running around and you had all kinds of contributors and all kinds of writings and no one had their hands on all of them at the same time right and so at some point they were like we need to centralize this and unify it but right then and there that's when they started um selecting scriptures that made the women out to be the bad guys there are there are Gnostic versions of the Garden of Eden story in which the serpent convinced Eve that the God who created the garden was keeping them blind because he was. And she was like, oh, there's more. There's more out there. And they were be- being done an injustice by keep being kept in this trap, in this box. Yeah, I want more. Yeah, I want out. I want to experience the fullness of what it means to be human on this planet. And we're being restricted. And so she was the one who saw how to break out of the very first uh oppressive situation humans were in which happened to be imposed on them by Yahweh and so she's actually painted as the first like we can say she's to blame or we can say that she's to credit for the fact that we now have a choice at all 
Um, just to clarify, in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, in one of those first few moments where Jesus is tempted, um, is the devil shown as a woman? The devil is played by a woman, a female character on purpose in that uh, in that one. And I don't remember why he what his reasoning was. I think it was I, I can't even speak to that. I think um, there's there's as many problems with that movie as there are with the Bible, in my opinion. But sorry to try to interrupt. The, Please continue. The, see, with a serpent that tempted Eve, that quote unquote tempted Eve, um, there are some there are some apocryphal sources that say that it was a female entity and it was the first woman to woman conversation where she was like you know he's keeping you blind right um and eve's act of biting the apple was an act of liberating mankind rather than condemning us all and then you have mary who there are also non-biblical accounts they didn't make the cut for some reason in which she said no six times to becoming impregnated with 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 the son of god and only said yes the seventh time after god wore her down what does that sound like? <laughs> What's the evidence you know? of that? There are the, the, te- the text that didn't, didn't make the cut. There are, are you, uh, I think it was the Gnostic Gospels. There's a Gospel of Mary that didn't make the cut. Um, are you talking about the ones that they found like like 150 there, years later in Egypt? The somewhere? Library. There's, yeah, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The like, Dead Sea and, Scrolls. And even, even then, it's not that we found them later. It's that they were on the table when the councils were meeting to decide what would be considered canon and what would, wouldn't. And the things that showed Mary, the things that showed Eve, the things that showed uh, Mary Magdalene as anything good were not added to the Bible. And supposedly Judas himself wrote something that was not included. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there was there are accounts of Judas, uh, like when the guards, like, like we, we have a story of like when, when they went to go crucify Jesus, the guards were like, how are we going to know what he looks like? And Judas is like, I'm going to kiss him on the cheek and then you'll know. You know how? You know why they didn't know? Like this guy is running around upsetting the establishment doing miracles. How the fuck did they not know what he looked like? Well, this book says that he was a shapeshifter. And that the rest of that conversation was like, oh, sometimes he's an old woman, sometimes he's an old man, sometimes he's a kid, sometimes he's nothing at all. And so you don't know what he looks like because he doesn't look the same. But ah, we disciples, we've been walking with him. We know what he looks like and we know his, his essence, his self. And so I'll go kiss him on the cheek. And that also explains why they didn't recognize him when he came back from the dead, when he was like, they, they had to see his scars. Thomas had to see his scars in order to believe he was Jesus because he probably didn't look like the guy who was on the cross. And we think that's crazy. But the guy fucking turned water into wine. He helped people walk. He brought people back from the dead. It's completely plausible that he was doing this. And there are also verses where he talks about how, like, I was, I was, I was hungry and you fed me. I was in the cold and you clothed me. All those things about how he gave people chances to serve him and they didn't realize it was him being served. We take that metaphorically, but he was probably running around being who knows how many different people giving opportunities to, to show what they were really made of, you know, and these verses don't, these books didn't make it into the cut because when a council of men in power got together to decide what was going to constitute their holy book, they made it male-centric. It wasn't one God who created Adam and Eve. It was seven. There were seven kings and seven kingdoms in this world. And each of them created a part of Adam. And there are books that go into which king created which part. There's a story of Adam's, Adam's mud body before God breathed life into it, just standing there doing nothing because it wasn't alive yet. And, and the Satan himself came and investigated and said, what's this new thing? And like embodied the body and saw that there was nothing special about it and left and was like, oh, I guess this is a weird little body, whatever. And then God came and breathed life. And like, there's all kinds of stuff out there that was in circulation and just as valid as all the stuff that we call our Bible until a room full of men decided 
it wasn't. And that's where you find all the stuff where the women were just as influential and powerful and meaningful and righteous as the men. And so let's go ahead and try to bounce back to the original point is if you're a man and you're seeing all of these men and, and that they were very historic in the Bible and stuff like that, what advice would you give to, let's say, a man when it comes to their own beliefs in God, beliefs in Jesus, the, the way they, they use spirituality in their lives, et cetera? My advice is to do the work. And what I say by do the work, what I mean is really, really investigate why it's such a man-centric religion based on such a man-centric book. And when I say book, it's really a library of books that is designed by men to promote an idea that men are to be in power. I, I would invite people to do the work and investigate why. Learn the history, learn the origins, learn the motivations as best as we can tell. Because when you do that work and you unpack those things, you kind of realize that the stuff that happened 2000 years ago is not at all what we're living in right now, what we believe it is, what we're taught it is by men behind a pulpit. And if you're not equipped with that, you don't really have an option but to see anything other than what you're given. You don't. You know, like it, it just, it, it's, and part of it too is just like, Another thing I would say, instead of just do the work, because that's all intellectual, that's all homework, that's all reading, that's all discovering, that's all, all that stuff that you can do with you and the internet. But another thing that I encourage men to do is listen to women and ask these questions. Ask women how they felt growing up in a, in a religious culture that says that if you're sexually assaulted, it's your fault for what you were wearing. Ask women how they feel about themselves, having grown up being told that. Ask women if they were sexually assaulted. And when they say yes, listen to them instead of asking for proof or trying to justify it. You don't necessarily have to ask the women you know, like just go, the whole Me Too, the whole Me Too movement. Twitter, Twitter is forever. Go back and find all the women who said Me Too. Choose to believe them. Imagine what it would mean if they were all telling the truth. Because they are. Like you, that, those are the things that broke me out of it. The things that broke me out of it was hearing how experiencing this religion as a man is very different from the experiences of all the women in my life and how they felt being told the things that they told, being told that when you get married, you have to be a virgin. And when you get married, you owe your husband sex, whether or not you want it. That when you get married, like marital rape is, on, is running rampant because there are men who are raping their wives because God said, you owe me sex. That's a part of Christian culture. That's a part of, like, the church condones this. And so if you're a man, you need to just kind of learn this stuff and grip, grapple with how you feel about the idea that it just might be true. I would caution, and I would, I, I, it would be hard-pressed to find any priest or preacher uh, that if approached by a woman... And they say, you know, I, my, my husband forced me to have sex with him, that they would be taking the man's side. I, if you are a man I of God, do. if you are that a man of God, I know, I just, I just really, really hope that if you are a man of God, that you are taking this woman seriously and doing your best to, to mend a, a hurtful situation because rape is rape. 
And I don't care what your status is. I don't care who you're married to. Um, if it's something is wrong, it's wrong. And, and God is watching that. That's all I have to say about that. Right. And, and if there's, and there are guys who want proof or the guys who want numbers or the guys who want statistics, whatever I'm, it, you found me on TikTok, and there's a good chance that a lot of the people listening will have also found me on TikTok. I have a video and I'm looking for it right now because I have some numbers that I can give in which there are uh, a, a ton of women who are talking about this very thing, how they would, would go to a pastor or they would go to a man of God and they would either say, I was sexually assaulted or my husband forces me to do it when I don't want to or coerces me or whatever. And time after time, after time, after time, these pastors and these ministers will say, well, the Bible says that you have to do it. You, your body is his to do what he wants with it. And if you fight him, then you're the one who's in sin and you just have to figure out a way to get through it and give it to him because that's what God wants you to do. Do you think that you can, at one point, can you email me some of the scriptures or the, I don't know how you even call that. Like Gnostics. The, um, no, well, anything that you can find in which it says that the woman or the wife owes the man sex whenever he wants. Well, that's the thing is I haven't found it in scripture. I've just found it in the church. That's something that's preached. That's something that's taught. And they but, don't reference the Bible. Look, it says it in Psalm 31, seven. I mean, it's, it's also like, you're also talking to a guy who doesn't think that heaven and hell, as we understand them today are in the source text. Like I, all the scriptures that we translate into the idea of an eternal punishment or eternal reward for the soul, those are not in the texts. Those are in English translations of, there's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a fax of a mistranslation, right? And so we take scriptures to mean certain things, but that doesn't mean that those scriptures mean those things. You know, like really quick example, the Bible doesn't say that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible says that Jesus is the word of God. And when I tell people the Bible's not the inspired word of God, they gave me scriptures. And I say, here's what those scriptures mean. And they don't mean the Bible, the 66 books that we have today is the inspired word of God. But they use those verses to defend that belief because they don't understand what they're saying. And so there's a tons, of, tons of stuff in there that either explicitly or implicitly implies or are things that you can use to construct an argument that women owe men their bodies. But it's not in the source text. It's not what any of those authors were meaning when they were saying it. And then there's also the side note of if sex is just a body having sex with a body, then, then, then the, both people are missing out. Like, it's not about what someone does with your body. It's what someone is doing with your soul. And, the, and, and part of Christian culture makes sex all about the body. And that's, that's like, that's all it's supposed to be, which is why so many ministers will tell women just daydream about something else while he does what he wants with your body. Because to that man, he's been taught that it's just a body doing a thing to a body. There's nothing else going on. And that's not what it is. That's, 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 it's, and again, that's not biblical. That's not in the Bible. That's part of the church. And the work of men who are raised in a church culture is to see this, recognize it, believe and accept that that's what's going on instead of downplaying it and justifying it, and then do something about it. I will reiterate my position. If you, <laughs> if you put on a cloak and tell people that you're a man of God and then tell a woman, just think about something else while he's having sex with you, you there's a special place in hell in which you are going to. All right, Ryan, what last question here for you. 
And maybe I'll have you back on the podcast again, because I could just feel like our conversations could be like 10 hours long. (laughs) There is another video that I would like to point out to you. But before I do, or before I ask you, I'm going to share with you a little, a little fable, a little story. After three years of study, a novice monk arrives at the dwelling of his teacher. He enters the room bursting, quote, master, I have ideas about issues of Buddhist metaphysics, end quote. He was well prepared for the deep questions that await him in his examination. The teacher says, I have but one question. The novice replies, I am ready, master. The teacher asks, in the doorway, were the flowers to the left or to the right of the umbrella? (laughs) The novice retires, abashed, for three more years of study. And so when your wife asked you to go to the attic or the basement to look for something and you couldn't find that other thing, (laughs) right? what does it mean, quote unquote, I only see what I'm looking for? So part of what it means to be uh, wired the way I'm wired is that you have regular meaningless life experiences and then you pull uh, meaning out of them. And so when I originally said that I was just physically talking about my, how I operate, like when I'm looking for a thing, I don't see anything other than what I'm looking for. It's not, what am I looking at? It's does what I'm looking at match the image in my head of what I'm trying to find. And if it doesn't match, I immediately dump the cash and forget about what it was. And that's just, I think like there's, there's a, a structure in the brain that it's called the reticular activating system and its whole job is to filter out sensory input based on what's not important. So like you go outside, you, you look outside and the wind's blowing and there are a bunch of trees, right? Your eyes are picking up every single minute movement of every single leaf on every branch of every tree in your field of vision. Your brain doesn't possibly have the bandwidth to, to, to comprehend every single one of those individual movements. And so most of them are, are just deleted or reduced to a general understanding that the wind is blowing the trees. Right. And so that's your reticular activating system's job is to take in the boatload of sensory information that you're taking in and figure out what's important. What do I need to focus on? What needs to get through? And that's what's your experience. And the rest of it, you literally don't experience. And a good, a good uh, example of this is there's this old video. It's on YouTube. It's called uh, follow the gorilla. Have you heard of this? Or no, it's not called the follow of all the follow the gorilla. It's follow the ball. So there are a bunch of people in a basketball court and there's a, a basketball and the instructions are follow the basketball and find out who's, and they're passing it back and forth. And it says, follow the basketball to find who who's holding it at the very end. And so you watch through it and you do it. But what you don't know is that a guy in a gorilla suit walks through the, the fray during the video, very conspicuously. And if you're following the basketball, you don't even see the guy in the gorilla suit. I just ruined it for everybody who hasn't done this yet, but I feel like a lot of people have already done it, but that's kind of just an example of what your RAS is doing all the time. And so in my, in my sense, I feel like when I go into, you know, um, Hunter mode, I, I, I kick in the RAS a little bit too far to where if it's something that's not the thing I'm looking for, I don't experience it beyond being able to tell whether or not it's the thing I'm looking for. But then I said those words out loud and said, I only see what I'm looking for. And I realized, holy shit, that's my whole life. That's my whole life. Like when it comes to people, when it comes to things, when it comes to affirmations, like we were talking earlier about how, how we have armor against compliments, but we, but we welcome, we, we welcome insults with open arms. That's your RAS. That's you seeing what you're looking for. 
And if you believe you're under the line, if you believe you're less than you are, you are going to have the doors wide open for things that affirm that belief. And if you're closed off to the idea that you might be more than you think you are, then even when you encounter them, they're going to bounce right off. And so there, I think there is some truth to if you're not present, if you're not mindful, if you're not aware, then the things that you already believe, whenever you encounter sensory information that affirms and confirms that, it's immediately going to be accepted and integrated. And when you find information that runs counter to that, it's immediately going to be dismissed or critiqued or, or diminished. And, and that's just, and again, like there are ways to not do that, but when you're on autopilot, I know at least I experience myself that way. And a lot of the people that are in my life, when they're on autopilot report the same. Either you control the day or the day controls you. The less that you are on autopilot, the more you will realize that your day is filled with much more than what you think it does. And so I guess my next question to you is, how often should we check in with ourselves, our biases, our beliefs, our way of thinking, and just sometimes just admitting to ourselves, you know, talking about weight, you know, I will never lose this weight, right? How often should we recognize these thoughts and, and be honest with ourselves as to who we really are? So I'm not, I don't like the word should for a lot of reasons. Um, But one thing that I think would benefit just about everyone, including myself and has benefited me and continues to benefit me is as often as you catch yourself having a thought, as often as you catch yourself having a thought, before you choose to believe it, ask yourself where it came from. If it's a sentence, ask yourself who put that there, especially if it's a belief about yourself. Oftentimes the answer is, oh, I believe this because I learned it. Who did you learn it from? If you learned it from one of your own life experiences, investigate why that's the conclusion you drew as, as opposed to any of the other conclusions you drew. And boom, you've discovered a bias. If you learned it from people, ask yourself, why did they teach that to you? What was the, what could their motivation have been? Ask, there's a, there's a, there's a common theme in this entire conversation, which is why you got to look at the thing. You don't judge the thing. You don't reject the thing. You don't accept the thing, but then you got to find the thing behind the thing and say, why? Right. And I'll give you a perfect example. There's a TikTok, which I, 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 contemplated taking down because everybody kind of went on the attack against my wife on this one but my wife has Hashimoto's and so her limbs don't just she just has a a circulation issue where her limbs just don't warm up and so she said it's cold and she's also the type of person who just will just observe reality out loud that's just how she is so she says it's cold and and I acknowledge and she says will you build a fire and I say yes so I build a fire and then in my mind I built fire therefore she should be warm and then I'm doing the dishes and she says I'm cold again And the second time I found that I took offense, how did I know I took offense? Because my body told me, I felt in my body what I feel. I feel this like flush in my, like a rush in my face and like this, this upward energy of, of, of like stress, you know, I can feel it go up through my torso and it happened an instant. I was like, Oh, I'm offended. What am I offended about? Oh, she just said she's cold. Well, then I stopped. And instead of accepting the offense and saying, well, I'm offended now. I also didn't reject the offense because I've been doing something called parts work which is where you acknowledge that every, the thing that makes you, you is really a conglomeration of all the you's you've ever been. 
And the part of me that got defensive was a part of me that has always been, um, has always needed affirmation from others and never got it. And so I went to that part and I was like, hey, you're good. Like, like I'm not gonna tell you not to be defensive, but you don't have to be because there's nothing to defend yourself against. So your feelings are valid, but also there's no threat, right? And I have to have that conversation with myself. And then I asked myself, why was that part of me offended? Why did that part of me take her saying I'm cold and get it and turn that into me feeling like I have to defend myself against something? Well, I interpreted that to mean that you were supposed to warm me up and you didn't. And, I, and now it didn't work. And so you suck at building fires. And building fires was the one way that you went to go take care of me. And so because you suck at building fires, you kind of I mean, you kind of suck at taking care of me. And if you can't take care of me, then what kind of husband are you? And, and if all of you are is a, all you are is a husband, then what kind of person are you who can't even husband well? All that stuff happened in my brain in like a split second, right? And I didn't uncover that until I asked why. And so when you have a, a bodily sensation that registers as an emotion, or you have a thought that registers as a belief or an observation, you don't shut it down because then you're denying yourself expression and you're, you're stuffing yourself further down into the realm of I don't accept you. And it's going to come up bigger and uglier and louder later. So you don't shut it down. You also don't take the bait. You don't accept it because a lot of times it's not truthful. Don't believe everything you believe, right? And so instead of either of those, you just simply engage with it. Let it be what it is and ask why. And then you start to get down to the roots. And then you find that, then you start to find the truth, right? And so as often as you catch yourself feeling a feeling, as often as you catch yourself thinking a thought, it behooves you to pause and ask why before engaging with or rejecting the thing. So the question, how often? As often as you remember that it's an option to do so. Thank you for that answer. Thank you, Ryan, for coming on to my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Ryan, tell us about you, your services, your TikTok, where people can find you on social media. Tell us everything. Oh, man. So you can find me on TikTok. On TikTok. My, my handle is the Holistic Mystic. Um, I'm thinking about changing it because there's one that I think works better, but people are already so used to that one being the thing that I think it's just a case of Bob Ross and his Afro at this point. But um, so the TikTok Holistic Mystic, I'm on Instagram. You can find me there. You can find my Instagram. I think it's R Bayron. Um, I don't really post anything there that's not on TikTok these days. <laughs> that's like my one social media outlet. Um, but other than that, I mean, everything that I've got going on is either behind me or in front of me. There's really nothing else to really uh, promote. There's a book that's on its way to getting published. There's, Excellent. Um, I have a podcast that I've, I'm on season three of. I have a co-host. It's called True North with Abby and Ryan, um, where my my friend Abby and I talk about a lot of things that you and I talk about here. And we just kind of like riff on it. It's um, about returning to wholeness and healing and finding your true north and choosing to follow it. And we finally settled on the fact that your true north is just whatever direction points you inward back to your true self. Um, there's... What else is going on? That's really it in my life as far as uh, consumables <laughs> at this point. Excellent. But, uh, and, and if you want more about me, when it, when it becomes available, it'll be promoted on the TikTok. So that's where to find me. Excellent. Thank you, Ryan. The title of this episode is Masculinity, Christianity, and Only Seeing What You Are Looking For with Ryan Bayron. In addition, Ryan 
will also be joining us next week. But this time, we're going to have another guest, Reverend Jeremy Hall. You might remember him from Understanding Christianity Part 1. All three of us will have a conversation about conservative Christianity. You will not want to miss it. And that will do it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Thank you for listening.